The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Gangad. I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Before I discuss our show today, I wanted to announce the winner of our 100th episode celebratory contest. Eamon Ryan, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing this correctly, it's E-A-M-O-N Ryan from Crystal Lake, Illinois, has won 10 hours with one of our experts. Um, so that is a very big deal. I can promise you that, uh, yeah, that that's actually quite a money saving. So congratulations for that. And um, I just want to let you know that we'll be reaching out to you by email very, very shortly. Um, now on to today. For my third segment, I'll be talking with Amy Alexander, also an educational consultant here at College Coach, about the role of the interview at highly selective colleges and universities. For my second... I'll be talking with Christine Kenyon, educational consultant at College Coach and former admission officer at Babson College, about unique and focused programs for women at various colleges, often geared towards promoting leadership and providing mentoring. For the first segment, however, I'll be talking to Jean Mahan, um, college finance consultant here at College Coach, and we'll be discussing how to compare, or I should say Jean will be telling me how to compare financial aid awards from colleges, because I don't really know much about that. So, (laughs) welcome, Jean. Thanks, Sally. Nice to be here today. Uh, thank you. Yes, we really appreciate having you here. So let's just dig right into it. Um, you know, when we talk about comparing financial aid awards, obviously that tells me that awards can be different at each school. They're not going to be standardized. So tell me more about that. Sure. So it's really a, can be a, a confusing process. It's not an apples-to-apples comparison, unfortunately. And, you know, very likely, even though your family contribution is the same at every school, the cost of the school or their ability to award financial aid is going to impact how much your family receives. So a a school that has a very large endowment and devotes a lot of money to financial aid and merit scholarships is more likely to be generous and possibly meet 100% of a family's demonstrated need whereas another school may only be able to award 60% of that family's need, which would leave them with a fairly significant gap that they would have to come up with in addition to their family contribution. So, you know, it's kind of difficult to say, okay, I'm getting a scholarship from this school. You know, the thought process is, well, I'll also get the same amount from this other school, but that's not likely to be the case. I think for a lot of families at their in-state public, you know, those costs are usually running maybe in the low 20s. If your family contribution is close to that or even exceeds that that cost of attendance, it's unlikely that you'd get any need-based financial aid from that school, where your same family contribution at a sixty or $65,000 school could net you some financial aid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember talking to a friend of mine who said she didn't think she would qualify for aid. And I said, well, you know, it's different at a public school and a private school because Mm -hmm. you won't qualify at a public. doesn't mean you won't qualify at a private. And she was completely, she didn't realize that. Right. And that's, that's so true. And that's why, you know, unless you've got, you know, millions and millions of dollars in the bank, and you probably wouldn't be listening to this segment anyway, then, you know, you you should definitely apply for financial aid. But what happens now is the award letters are starting to come, and we've already been getting calls from families asking us to sort of help them understand what these different types of aid mean. So basically, you know, again, award letters look different from school to school, but usually what they'll tell you is what their costs are, and they include direct costs like tuition fees, room and board, as well as some indirect costs like books, supplies, transportation, and personal expenses. 
So what I usually recommend is for families to take their direct costs, you know, the, the costs that are fixed that they really have very little to no control over, like tuition fees, room and board, and subtract all the grant and scholarship money that their student has received. So that's the free money. When you subtract that, that's your net cost. Now see what you have to come up with and determine how you plan to cover that balance. Maybe you've got some savings that you're going to use it. Maybe you're thinking about student loans or potentially parent loans as well. Um, Maybe you're thinking about covering that with uh, out-of-pocket expenses throughout the, the academic year. So really looking at that number and taking, you know, comparing it to what you might have to pay at other schools and then, you know, making your, uh, hopefully you're making some of your decision based on finances. Um, You know, talk to your child about the indirect costs that you'll be responsible for as a family. You know, you're going to have to worry about transportation if your child's going to need to fly back and forth. That's going to be more costly than maybe getting in the car and taking a road trip. Um, Is your child, uh, you know, kind of frugal or are they a spendthrift? That's going to mean more in the way of personal expenses. Um, Books are going to be more for an engineering major than they may be for a history or English major. So those things have to be kind of figured out and who's going to, how are we going to pay for these and who's going to pay for them, the student or the parent. Mm -hmm. Right, and it's better to plan it ahead of time than uh, get a big credit card bill. Exactly. (laughs) This is is definitely a four-year plan, so be thinking ahead and, and, you know, Scholarships and grants are free money. That's great, and you don't have to repay that. And some of them are merit-based because your child has some talent the school wants. Others are based on your family's need. One thing I usually caution families about uh, if they've re- their child has received a merit scholarship is to make sure they know whether that amount that's been quoted in, in the letter is that for one year or for four years. Um, and what does that child have to do to maintain that scholarship? Is it a certain GPA? Is it playing a sport, you know, playing the violin or whatever? And if your child loses the scholarship, does he or she have a chance to earn it back, or is it gone forever? Um, I usually recommend that families ask how many students bring that scholarship from freshman year to sophomore year, what percentage of students. And if it seems very low, then be prepared that your child might be one of those who doesn't carry it forward. So that could add to your cost like, mm-hmm. later down on the line. Yeah, I had, a, I had a family with relatively high need, and their daughter got some great scholarships to a school um, that, honestly, she was very well capable of doing well at, but she, she, I don't know, she didn't do well, she broke up with her boyfriend, she had too much fun at other times, and yeah. they lost the aid, and that was that, and suddenly yeah. the family couldn't afford it, so yeah. it was very tough. And some very generous schools can make, if it, you know, if there is need in the family, can make that up with need-based aid. But what I think a lot of kids and sometimes their families don't understand is even if you attended a rigorous high school and did very, very well, college is a whole different ball game. And for many students, it's their first time away from home for any significant period of time. They're on their own. There isn't a teacher reminding them that there's 400 pages to be read by Friday and a, and a quiz next week, you know. And so I think that there's a lot of adjustments, especially in the first semester, that could cause a student's grade point average to dip a little bit below what the family expected. So, you know, just making your child aware that, you know, whatever it is that they earned that scholarship for, they need to maintain that talent, that grade point average, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you, how do you ask for an increase in the merit scholarship? Well, it, you can go to the admissions office. They're usually the source of that money and ask for an increase. Um, you know, you want to maybe show something new, something, uh, maybe new test scores or an award that the student might have received. You might even want to be able to use another offer that you receive from a different school that might be better and say, you know, we've received this scholarship. We're wondering if you could increase yours um, or, you know, Sarah has gotten really a big bump up on her SATs or she got this great award and the school might be willing to... Um, to increase the, the amount that they offered. If it's, an, if it's a need-based scholarship, you'd want to work with the financial aid office as an appeal, and usually what you'd be telling them is that there's something new that happened in your family. Maybe one of the parents lost a job or had their hours cut back, or maybe parents are now caring for an elderly grandparent, and so or they have a child with special educational needs or they have high unreimbursed medical expenses. 
So, you know, going back to the financial aid often saying our circumstances are different than they were when we filled it out. Can you take that into account? And sometimes the schools can do that and will increase the, the um, need-based aid that the student has been awarded. So, mm-hmm. so it's always a good the- idea to make sure that the financial aid knows of things that uh, knows of things that aren't regular. You know, if, if you submitted that FAFSA and things were good and then things took a dive afterwards, you definitely want to reach out and let them know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can tell you that, you know, at University of Chicago, when I worked there, that was a well-funded institution, and mm-hmm. so something like that would have made a difference in the aid package. Yes. It, it won't automatically, but it absolutely will at some. Right. So. Right. Um, so there's different types of um, of. I mean, aid comes from different sources. Mm-hmm. One of those is work-study. What is yeah. work-study? That tends to confuse people. It yeah. doesn't necessarily just mean getting a job. So work-study is described as a grant. So a lot of times a family will see work-study grant. It'll appear on the, the award letter, and they'll think, oh, great, you know, we have this $2,500 that's going to be credited to the bill when it comes through. But it's actually a different kind of a grant. It's a grant that you actually have to earn. So it gives your child the opportunity to work, usually on campus, um, about five to ten hours a week, and your child will receive a paycheck on whatever schedule the university pays their employees. And your child can use the money to cover books, you know, transportation, expenses, coffee, whatever it is. Um, and the good news for parents is that having, if your child has a work-study job, you don't need to send an allowance. Woohoo! Save you a little money. And the good news for students is um, that they're earning money, they're getting experience that they can hopefully um, include on a resume. I mean, sometimes it's a food service job. My daughter started chopping salads as a freshman, but she moved on to bigger and better things. We do still rely on her for those great chopped salads that she learned how to make. Um, so, you know, different types of experiences the student can get. Um, so I, and I think it's a great way to, to include that as a way to manage time. So, you know, instead of... Um, taking a nap or maybe being on Instagram or something, you've got five or ten hours a week where you have to go somewhere and do something else. And it's kind of a break from the academics, too. So I think it's a really positive um, opportunity for students to get a work-study job. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just going to put in another plug for work-study. I was work-study, and that's how I got a job as a tour guide in the admission mm-hmm. office, which led me to being an intern in the office, which, guess what, led me to working in an yeah. admission office at this job. So I'm just going to put in that additional plug. It can really be something that gets you going towards your yes. career. You're so right. Yeah. So what about loans? Okay. Um, loans are kind of everybody's terrified of them, but really yeah. most of us have to rely on them. Right. And so there are different kinds of loans. The federal government offers students um, the opportunity to participate in a student loan program that's known as the direct, and some schools still refer to it as Stafford loans. And those are loans that your child can borrow um, without a co-signer, without a credit check. The amounts are pretty modest. A freshman can only borrow $5,500. And the total amount that a student can borrow over four years is about $27,000 in principal. Um, so that's usually the first loan that we encourage families to look at because the interest rates are low. There's no um, requirement to make payments while the student is in school, even if they continue on to graduate school. Um, some of the loans are subsidized, and that depends on your family contribution and the cost of the school. And subsidized means that the interest is paid while the borrowers in school and during the six-month grace period, and again, if they continue on to grad school. An unsubsidized loan is accruing interest from the day that the funds are dispersed to the school. Um, But again, students are not required to make interest payments. There's no prepayment penalty on these loans. Um, They can help a student, you know, uh, develop a credit history. Um, There are different types of repayment options, including some that are tied to income. So as long as a student takes you know, takes the responsibility to be on top of their debt and sets up a payment plan that's going to work for them. They really shouldn't have too many problems borrowing. Um, Parents are also eligible to borrow through the Federal PLUS program, which is kind of a sister program to the student loans, um, but they do, the interest rate is a little higher. It is fixed. So some parents choose to borrow those because they can also request a deferment of payment while their child is in school. Um, Some families opt to use um, private loans. Maybe the parent is going to borrow that private loan, or maybe the student will borrow that private loan, but the student will need a creditworthy co-signer in order to get the funds. Um, Things changed after the economic meltdown, so students are no longer able to borrow private loans 
um, without a cosigner. So, you know, I, I caution families when they're looking at parent or private loans to think about what's going to happen on the back end when you actually start going into repayment. Estimate what your monthly payment will be. The New York Times has a great um, student loan calculator that you can just you do an internet search for it, and it will you can put in the amounts that you expect to borrow, and it'll give you the amount that you'll be expected to repay. You know, for the term that you choose. So that's really important information. Many times a family will say, well, gee, I don't have the money to make payments on, say, a payment plan. I'm just going to borrow a loan. And I encourage them to think down the road. I mean, if you can't afford it now, can you afford it, say, in five years when the loan goes into repayment? Because these loans are not, you know, something that you can get out of by filing bankruptcy. Um, They kind of follow you right to the end of your life if you don't repay them. So, you know, parents should really think carefully about the debt that they're taking on or if they're co-signing for a student, their responsibility with that because, you know, when you co-sign a loan, you're just as responsible for that loan as the borrower is. So there's a website. um, It's called finaid.org. It's F-I-N-A-I-D.org. And they have a calculator that you can use to kind of compare award letters. So I'd encourage people to check that out if they're, um, if they're interested, but I think a simple way is just to do a spreadsheet, you know, put in the cost of each school, subtract out the free money, and then see how much um, you'd have to borrow or come up with out of pocket, and that's going to be the best way to determine, you know, which one you can afford. Mm-hmm. Another All thing you right, well, have to think about is how many children they have to educate. So, you know, maybe this is your first child to go to college and you're thinking of borrowing $20,000 a year for four years. That translates to $80,000 and a payment of about $800 a month when you're in repayment. If you have one, two, or three more children that need to be educated, you really want to think about how much you'll be able to afford, how old will you be when the last one finishes, will you ever be able to retire if you've taken on this much debt, and so to really proceed with caution when borrowing loans. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think you've given parents a lot to think about. I mean, aid is a huge factor for 99% of us these mm-hmm. days. So, um, All right. So thank you again, Jean. And well, everyone, listeners, <laughs> we'll now be taking a short break. And when we return, I'll be welcoming Christine Kenyon, formerly of Babson College, to discuss special programs for women at the college level. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Fire can destroy your home, your business, and your life in seconds. On Speaking of Fire with co-hosts Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, we investigate fire, the origin and causes, and provide important information to prevent accidental fires and save your life, loved ones, and your property. We speak to experts about technology, investigative research, and insurance issues with regard to fire. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. As I mentioned previously, Christine and I will be discussing leadership and mentoring programs for women. So welcome back, listeners, and welcome to Christine. Thanks, Sally. All right. So um, I think that this is a particularly interesting topic right now when, you know, whether you... um, whether you're happy with the political state of affairs right now or not happy with it, it was pretty interesting to watch um, the enormous women's marches all over the, not just on Washington, D.C., but all over the country. There's been sort of a lot of talk about more women trying to get into politics. And so I think that makes, it kind of brings us maybe a special level of importance to um, college programs that promote leadership and mentoring um, leadership and mentoring among women. So is that, you know, what do you think about that, Christine? Yeah, I totally agree. You know, when I was looking at colleges back in the day, I didn't even know that these types of programs existed. I didn't know to ask about resources for women on campus. Um, It wasn't even something on my radar. And so I think it's just really interesting, and um, especially as you highlighted with the timing of what's going on today, to note that there are a lot of really phenomenal programs throughout the U.S. at different colleges and universities that are specifically aimed at, um, at women and educating young women, uh, promoting confidence in young women, and helping them prepare to become future leaders uh, in all different uh, career paths and areas that they study. So I think it's something that for young women who are embarking on the college search process right now, beginning to do visits to college, Um, this is something that can be really helpful because now you can be more informed and you can know to ask about these programs if it's something that you think might be helpful for you and your development in college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these programs offer some pretty amazing opportunities. I was looking at the the list that you provided me. Uh, There's one at Barnard. It's called the Athena Center. Yeah, Barnard's really interesting because, you know, it is a women's college, and so they, they are dedicated to educating women um, and providing that unique kind of educational experience. But beyond that, um, they do offer something called the Athena Center. So this is something students can even more so opt into uh, within their, their Barnard experience. Um, and so the goal of the Athena Center is really to help students make informed and strategic decisions that um, really reflect what their goals are, both personally and professionally. Um, and you'll hear a lot of similar uh, statements like that when you look into mission programs of these different women's leadership programs throughout different colleges in the U.S. Um, but what's neat about the Athena Center is that they have a scholars and a fellowship program. Um, so there is funding available for students um, specifically to gain additional leadership opportunities. There's uh, a program specifically for women in politics, which is pretty neat. And then beyond that, students can always opt into the mentoring and enrichment program. So they have a lot of uh, workshops focusing on entrepreneurship and leadership. Um, and the mentoring piece is something that you'll see again and again at these different programs at the collegiate level. Um, because I think a lot of these women's resource centers are highlighting and noting how important it is to have um, a cohort of peers and to be able to connect with somebody a little bit older than you to sort of say, I've been through this, you can do this, here was my experience, um, let's do this all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think people underestimate the impact that a mentor can have on your life. I mean, this, this, I've never had a, been in part of a formal mentoring relationship, but the few informal ones I've had have been just absolutely crucial to my development in my career. So really, like, get a head start on me. I didn't really have a mentor until, you know, my second year working. Um, So, (laughs) yeah, started in college is what I would say. Now, I understand that Stanford has one, too, or it has a women's community center. Yeah, they have this really broad-based women's community center. Um, And their goal is, you know, similar to the Athena Center in that, you know, they want to provide opportunities for scholarship, for leadership, for activism. Um, there's a huge emphasis on mentorship. And, and really what they're highlighting is that they want to bring, like, up to date. They want to talk about issues that include sexual harassment, pay equity, discrimination in the classroom. That's, that's why the Stanford Women's Community Center was started, um, was to focus on these issues that 
that women have faced in the past and in many ways still continue to face today. So they have a lot of emphasis in women at work, and they also have a program for women in STEM. Um, and there are a couple of programs we'll, we can talk about a little later that are focused specifically on um, helping and encouraging and supporting women who are going into STEM and business fields, which are fields where women are, are traditionally uh, underrepresented. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, what's neat about these programs, like you highlighted, is the importance of having that mentor. And I think especially when women begin the job process, things like knowing when it's appropriate to say to say no and, and to say, you know what, I, I, I can't handle this. I can't take this on because it's going to be too much. Knowing when to say yes and to lean in and to say, yes, I can do this. I'm capable of this and I'm ready and willing to. Um, knowing when to negotiate for your salary and how to be an advocate for yourself. These are the types of things that um, the Women's Community Center at Stanford and on really all of these women's leadership programs throughout um, the country are trying to help women become more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. That seems very important almost, I mean, it's important everywhere, but maybe especially at Stanford given how dominant Stanford is in the tech industry and how famously... Yeah the tech industry, women are underrepresented. So that's great. Um, and I've heard that apparently Princeton's got one too. Tell us, uh, tell us about yeah, that Yeah, so one. this one, Princeton's pretty interesting because they have this women's mentorship program that um, really only began in 2011. And so it sparked and it, it sort of was created um, after this survey was done and this, this big sort of institutional look at um, how women were engaging with uh, the Princeton community. Um, and what they found was that women on Princeton's campus were less inclined to think of themselves as leaders and more likely to lower their expectation of leading once they got to campus. And they found that in that particular year um, and in many previous years, there were no women in leadership positions outside of community service organizations at Princeton. So they sort of took a step back and said, whoa, like, we're an Ivy League institution. We want to be a leader in this field. We want to be promoting women to feel strong and confident in entering the workforce. And so the Women's Mentorship Program started, you know, just five years ago. And what I find um, really great about their program is that today they have over 600 members on campus. And so they have these great workshops and seminars, but it is focused on mentorship, both um, in a group method as well as one-on-one individual mentorship to help women have the confidence to engage, to feel like leaders, um, and to think of themselves as leaders both on campus and, and especially when they graduate. Great. That is, uh, yeah, again, Princeton is a pretty, I mean, all these institutions are important, but Princeton sends something like 47%, I read somewhere. It could be, I don't know how accurate that is, into um, to Wall Street, and that's another um, area where women are really underrepresented. So, again, really yeah. valuable. Um, and something for parents to think about. I mean, I assume most of the time high school students aren't listening to us. You know, parents, if you have a daughter who's interested in one of these areas, especially where women are underrepresented, looking for programs like this is is probably a very good idea. Um, But it's not only at these incredibly selective institutions. There's also George Washington University, which is highly selective, but not as crazy impossible as, say, Stanford and Princeton. So let's talk about GW. They're Elizabeth J. Somers' Women's Leadership Program. Yeah, I, I love that throughout the U.S. there are different colleges and universities of different levels of selectivity um, that still focus on providing these opportunities for young women on campus. Um, DW is right in the heart of Washington, D.C., so they attract a lot of students who are interested in going into politics. And so what's really interesting about their Summers Women's Leadership Program is that it's actually a selected year-long living and learning program for first-year students. So you can be studying any major. You don't have to focus on political science or international relations. Um, you can focus on whatever you want. And I'll be part of this women's leadership program where you would have smaller classes. You would have close contact with faculty and women in leadership roles, um, a lot of connections to the local community, with weekly symposia and lectures. And you would all live together in a common residence hall with grad students as your peer mentors and residence assistants. So this is a really immersive program, um, which I think is really cool for, for women who are looking for that additional support, um, especially in a city where, where women are under, underrepresented um, in the political sphere. 
Okay, great. Um, yeah, and we can't underestimate GW's location in D.C. as providing opportunities in the political sphere. What about um, at state schools? So far we've been talking about private schools, and I think UMass Amherst has a, has a good program. Yeah, UMass Amherst has an awesome program. So their center is called the Center for Women and Community. And what's really neat about it is that um, it's a center not only for students on their campus, but for any of the students who attend the five colleges, which are local to the Amherst region, um, as well as anybody in the county of Hampshire, Hampshire County in Massachusetts, can take advantage of the resources of the Center for Women and Community. So this is a really... Um, broad-based and community-driven center. Um, they offer a lot of counseling and crisis services. They offer workshops on salary negotiations, leadership development, networking. Um, they even have a one-credit spring course that students at UMass can take called Women into Leadership. And so that really provides hands-on training and practical preparation for uh, students who want to go into leadership. So it's a really interesting center. It's a really interesting opportunity. Um, and I sort of love that as a state flagship institution, they're, they're sort of leading the way. You know, this, this isn't the type of uh, program or uh, center that you only have access to if you go to the most highly selected colleges. Um, you know, right at your local state school like UMass, you might have these great opportunities as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, what about um, what about at some of what about programs that might be focused on business and STEM? Um, I know you used to work at Babson, and it looks like Babson has a center for entrepreneurial leadership. So I worked at Babson for five years, and uh, Babson is business college. Everyone focuses on uh, the same major, the same degree. Uh, there's a big entrepreneurship at Babson, so. The Center for Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership, or CWEL, um, is this really great resource center on campus uh, specifically to promote women in business um, and women in entrepreneurship. So there are scholarships available to women who qualify. Um, There's an immense amount of programming that occurs. All right. Well, thanks so much, Christine. Stick around, listeners, as I'll be talking with Amy Alexander about interviews at highly selective institutions. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I'm happy to say we have Amy Alexander here, and um, she will be discussing um, interviews at highly selective institutions with me and how much they count and all that other good stuff. So, welcome, Amy. Thank you so much, Sally. So, Amy, just so that people get a sense of, I think, our um, our background, you know, the extent to which we can talk about this, I'll just mention that I worked and did a lot of interviews at the University of Chicago. What's your background? So great. I um, actually worked at the Yale University undergraduate admissions office. So I did interviews there as an admissions officer. And then for over 10 years, I was part of the alumni schools committee uh, in various parts of the country. I lived in San Francisco, California. I lived in Washington, D.C. I lived in New York. And I interviewed as an alum students, prospective students who are applying to Yale. So I've seen it on both sides and can mm-hmm. really give some good, juicy advice about kind of both of them. Okay, and that's really helpful because I, after I got out of admissions, um, I didn't do interviews anymore as an alum. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm really glad you have that perspective as well. So um, let's dive yeah. right in. So there's interviews at the Ivies versus interviews at some other colleges. What would you say, right. you know, what are some of the differences? Well, I would say, you know, it's interesting, and some of this is anecdotal. I don't have a lot of fact facts. I mean, I can definitely tell you, and we'll get into it at some point. Um, you know, there are, for all schools, really, selective and less selective, there are interviews that are offered on campus. There are interviews offered as alumni interviews after you apply. Some of them are informational interviews. Some of them are evaluative and used in the process. I will say that having done this for over 20 years, I do believe that the highly selective ones, they probably have less weight than they do at some of the less selective schools. When you are showing demonstrated interest, you're showing up to a college and you are doing the tour, the information session, showing up for an interview at a less selective college, I think it probably holds a little bit more weight. At the more selective colleges, just to allay any fears for our listeners, probably holds less weight. Now, is it an additional piece of information? Does it help flush out a candidate? Does it add? Does it say, oh, this is kind of what's in the rest of the application, or hmm, I'm seeing something different? Really, unless a student says something really off base, really arrogant, ridiculous, crazy, it's not going to impact the student negatively. Or if a student just shines and does incredibly well, it'll probably just enhance the application. But I would not say that the interview alone, and I want to say that up front, is not going to get you into a highly selective college, and it's likely not going to bounce you out of one. Right. And I agree. I mean, that's, you know, the the only times an interview, you know, has has not has really been a big negative in a student's file is when they were overtly rude. Like, I actually love to tell this anecdote because it's so crazy to me. One of our graduate students was interviewing... um, was interviewing a candidate who was actually from my territory, and I had given the information session at the school that day. And um, so she was, when she was talking to this candidate, uh, this particular applicant, she said, um, she said, so Sally Ganga, who, you know, who you met doing the information session, she's the one who's in charge of your, you know, of Iowa, where you're from. And he said, oh, that's Sally chick. Which <laughs> is just astonishingly rude. No, no. <laughs> she said no, that no. Sally Chick no, no. is in charge of whether you get in or not. So, and of course, immediately she told me about that. I mean, it was really quite a remarkable, uh, remarkably rude statement. Now, I will say that when I read his application, you know, that was in the interview write up, he really wasn't qualified anyway, but if he had mm-hmm. been, that would have been a very big negative marker. And what astonished me about that student is apparently Chicago was actually his top choice, and yet he still behaved so poorly. It was really remarkable. So just kind of think about that. Like, how would you behave in church um, yeah. might be one of the ways to think about it. Don't use any language you, you, you wouldn't use around your grandparents, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, and I have a, not, not a kind of an arrogant one like that uh, as overt, 
But uh, when I was at, at the Yale admissions office, I remember, you know, I did a lot of interviews depending on the time of year, and we kept them really to 20 minutes. So some students thought, oh, I didn't do well. But I told them up front, we have 20 minutes allotted. I mean, I'm doing them back to back. And this one student came in and said, listen, I know we only have 20 minutes, so this is what I need to tell you. You probably won't talk much because I need to tell you a lot of things. And at first I thought, wow, what arrogance, what confidence. But he really just had so much he wanted to tell that he didn't think was going to come out in the application, and it ended up being quite lovely. Like, he was a really nice young man. I do remember getting his application. I think I was the second reader. And, you know, a nice boy, but he was so afraid it wasn't going to come out, and he kind of didn't know how to say it any other way. I did say at the end, you probably don't want to start that way. You probably just want to say, I have so much to tell you. Do you mind if I kind of keep going and, and not stop. And uh, he could handle a little differently, but it worked out. But you're right. You have to think about your audience and show respect right up front because you're leaving that first impression. Exactly. But I think that's actually a great story because, I mean, really, 99% of candidates are not going to behave the way my example did. I mean, more right. than that. But yours is an example, I think, of, yeah, a perfectly lovely young man who was just nervous and that kind of nervousness. Yeah is pretty common, and I'll just say that when I talked to a student who was nervous, I never held that against them at all. I mean, it would not, you know, maybe they didn't have a chance to make that incredible impression, but it never was anything where I said, well, that's it, I'm not interested. I mean, they're 17, they get to be nervous, you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I'd say, you know, really important for me, too, what I remember is so many times, you know, I remember this particular young man, and he was really lovely, and he did have a couple things. He had so many things that were not going to come out in the application because he didn't want to, you know, overdose and, you know, add on additional thick pages, which is really good because the admissions officer doesn't want to read them. So use the interview for that. But I would say very, very important is to know the college, know the program, do your research, you know, make sure you come in, not, especially with a selective college, you have such a short amount of time and you really want to make an impression and you want to show, well, how is that college going to be a good fit? You know, there's so many students that apply. We all know the numbers at the Ivies and the Ivy-like schools are well under 8% admit rate. So you want to really show um, how is this college the right fit for me and get that across. It's very important maybe coming in knowing uh, specific courses or programs or professors that you'd want to work under. And I think that, you know, in a, if you do it kind of in a modest way and just kind of, wow, I'm just really excited uh, and not in an arrogant way, I think that makes an impression that you've really done your research. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And just to do a comparison with a less selective school, I worked at Whittier College in Southern California for a while. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lovely institution, but really not particular. I mean, certainly a selective institution, but not a highly selective institution. And, you know, at those situations, I loved the interviews, but they really weren't particularly evaluative. I will say that occasionally a student did make a really good impression, and I might mm-hmm. advocate for them a little bit around the edges, but most of the time, you know, most of the students coming in might be, you know, really well qualified anyway, and so I was just trying to right. kind of guide them, and it would it would be kind of interesting. I mean, sometimes I'd have students from the neighborhood who would come back and see me multiple times, and I'd kind of mentor them through the process, because sometimes they were first generation. Sometimes they were, um, you know, their parents weren't able to help them, so they kept kind of coming back to me going, what do I need to do now? And I will say that for those of you whose students are looking at maybe a less selective institution that admits over 50% of their students, especially if it's a private institution, they might be able to give you that kind of hands-on counseling, and they might, they would be likely be very, very willing and happy to do so. So now, by contrast, if someone had asked for that kind of attention at Chicago, I would have been like, I don't have time for you, and you're really being way too demanding, so please go away. Not because I don't like you, but really think about it. How many thousands of applications and the students I'm working with, but at Whittier it was very possible. So try and suss out the kind of institution you're at, and actually an interview I think initially is one of the ways to do so, as well as, of course, talking to your high school counselor. So Um, Yeah, and I think what you just said, Sally, you know, brings me to the point that I really do want to make sure we talk about with the highly selective uh, institutions in the interview process is some of them are, um, as I said before, informational and some are evaluative. So, you know, a school like, I know very few schools actually nowadays, the very selective ones, that is, offer 
on-campus interviews. So, for example, um, you know, like Cornell, for example, does only offers for certain programs. So if you're applying to the College of Architecture uh, or Art Department, uh, formal interviews are actually offered and suggested. You should come and do those for those specific programs. Otherwise, for Cornell, alumni interviews are offered, and they are informational. They're evaluative really for those specific programs. A place like Wesleyan, very highly selective, smaller liberal arts uh, college, recommends you come on campus and do an interview. They want to get to know you a little bit more and have that piece in the application process. They do also offer alumni interviews, um, but they are evaluative in the process. Um, Another highly selective school is Wake Forest. Now, they're an interesting school because they require interviews. All students who apply must interview. That is an evaluative part of the process. Uh, they also do offer alumni interviews, but all students will, will do one. And even if you live in, you know, Singapore, they offer Skype or GChat, which both are considered equally as an in-person. So this is the other thing. You really want to check out your schools. And if you're looking at highly selective schools, like some of the ones I mentioned, um, you want to see, do they offer on campus? Do they offer just alumni? Are they informational? Are they evaluative? Are they required? How are they used? Um, Are there specific programs that you're interested in within these schools? And is it better to go and have an interview, you know, send a sample, have someone talk to you about it? So... You know, for the highly selective ones in general, I would say they're more informational and they're just that additional piece, but sometimes they really are important. So I did just want to make sure that students understood that and not to stress about it, but if it is something that's going to help them, they should do it if they're a strong interviewer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I think what you're saying is crucial in terms of, you know, look and see if they require this, if they really recommend this. Because if you don't know and you request one, they're still going to have potentially earlier deadlines um, for an interview. Like I was working with an international student and um, who was interested in Georgia Tech, and I told her actually multiple times, you've got to sign up for an interview because an interview was really recommended for international students where English wasn't their their native language, and, you know, mm-hmm. she requested it basically two weeks before the deadline, and guess what? They were full. So it was going to be, mm-hmm. you know, they were, I told her to sign up anyway in case she was deferred, but, you know, if you're applying from out of state to Georgia Tech, it's probably, my sense is it's a good idea to apply by their early action deadline. So, you know, check these things out ahead. If you know you're applying to a school and you know it's a selective school, find out if, you know, a lot of them are like, look, we're not even going to talk to you until you apply, but others you need to set stuff up ahead of time. So look on their websites. Everything is on the website, and you can even do a quick search like, you know, Georgia Tech International Student Interviews or Georgia Tech Campus Visits and Interviews or whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, for the interviews, whether they're on-campus or alumni interviews, you know, a big question I just, you know, remembered, well, a lot of students ask me, should I bring a resume, should I bring my transcript, you know, should I, when the alumni interview uh, or, you know, calls me to set up where I schedule one on campus, should I send something before so they see it? Now, I think everyone's different, but my advice that I've always told students, don't bring anything, don't send anything. Have a clean slate because you want to go in and really make an impression. What they do with that interview, whether it's on campus or an alumni interview, is they actually write up a little summary or a report, and that report gets added to the application. And that's clean. You know, if you say something funny or, you know, you see something really interesting, um, you know, an excitement about working with a particular professor, they're going to write that. That's going to be part of the application. And if it adds to that cohesiveness, it could be helpful. So I think going in with a clean slate and just letting them get to know you and some of those things that won't come out in the application is the ideal way to do it. If they request something beforehand, of course, but most don't. I mean, would you agree with that, Sally? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, sometimes I never saw any harm in bringing a resume, but I wasn't that interested in looking at it. You know, it's not mm-hmm. a job interview, and I was going to be able to see their application. Sometimes, in fact, if it was a student interviewing after the application deadline, you know, I uh, I had their application in front of me, so I already mm-hmm. had quite a bit of information. If a student brought in a resume, I would kind of look at it and maybe ask a little bit about their activities, but I was not interested in, you know, talking about their academic 
academics or anything like that, because, again, all that was going to be on the application. Um, right. And the kind of questions I was going to ask about their academics was going to be more, why do you enjoy this particular class? What is your favorite class? You know, that sort of thing. So I really actually see your point. Like, I like, I like this idea of there not being, like, a document kind of between you and the interviewer. You know, mm-hmm. that it is just the two, peop- two people talking. Um, and, yeah, I think there's more emphasis. I think people think resumes are really crucial, and in many cases, sometimes they'll highlight even that a student hasn't done much, for example. So, Right, right. Yeah. You know, the other thing I was thinking when you were talking is, who will your interviewer be? And whether it's on campus or an alum, it tends to be one of two kinds of people. It's, it's, you know, for the alum, it's a much older alum, especially for these Ivy schools. You're looking at Yale, Harvard, Princeton, people who like to stay involved in the school, and they graduated years ago. You know, they're in their 60s or 70s even, and this is something they want to, you know, they're close to retirement or they're retired, and they still want to spend time staying involved. And, you know, with those interviewers, I often tell students, ask them, you should always have questions at the end for your interview. You always have, want to have one or two questions. But with them, I would say, ask them about their experience. Ask them why they've stayed involved. Ask them, and they love to talk. And they often feel the interview went better because they're talking all about themselves. So that's kind of fun to learn from the older ones. Or it could be on the flip side, a really recent graduate who's gung-ho, wants to stay involved, and they can really kind of tell you more about the current stuff happening on campus and what their experience was like. And that's similar, you know, in the admissions office. You have those recent alums who are, love their school experience. They want to stay and work at, you know, I worked at Yale soon after uh, I graduated from there and worked there for four years and then moved on to other things. Um, or you have people who've been there forever, you know, and maybe came from another institution or just kind of went there and stayed there for 20 years, so they are a little older. So you do have to think about your interviewer and your audience and how you are going to uh, talk with them, but also the questions you're going to ask at the end. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we only have a few seconds left now, so I'm going to wrap okay. it up. But, Amy, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too. And all right, so thanks to uh, the rest of my guests, Christine and Jean. And last, I want to remind everyone that every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download the shows for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find our shows featuring the Schools Out and Schools In segments, which began on June 30th. And if you like our show, be sure to rate us on iTunes. It only takes a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free. Last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So check us out. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.